You turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and our passage this morning will be verse 13, but I'm going to go ahead and just read uh, verse 12 also to complete the entire thought. Would you stand with me now out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant Word of the living God? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, we request of you... Brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And with your Bibles open, I would invite you uh, this morning to fix your eyes on the very last portion of verse 13 to see something that is obviously and evidently something that is very near and dear to the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's bound up in that last clause, which is a command, live in peace with one another. And that word peace means that which promotes harmony and unity. The command itself tells us very explicitly and clearly that Jesus Christ not only desires and not only delights in, but commands peace in his church. And as you think about that and you um, take in the rest of the New Testament, you begin to realize that this is something that is an obvious, an obvious critical moral objective. Romans 14, 19. Pursue the things which make for peace. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Be like-minded, live in peace. Ephesians 4, 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So you can see here, the very command we have in our text is a part of a set of commands which are full of urgency in the New Testament. Pursue peace, live in peace, preserve unity in the bond of peace. And we can just simply add verse 13 into that whole set of New Testament texts here, which call for this particular way of being in the church. But if we would appreciate this text, we would see that not only is it commanded here, but the Apostle Paul teaches the church that it is to be pursued in a specific way. See, he doesn't just command peace and call for peace and state the desire for peace. He speaks about peace being brought about within the church in a particular way. And we can grasp hold of that force of thought here by asking a simple question of our text this morning. How does this particular command to live at peace fit within the flow of thought? The question would be then this morning, is this simply a standalone command? Or does this particular command here in verse 13 go with what follows in verse 14 as Paul addresses particular commands to the congregation about how to behave towards one another? Or does this command fit with what Paul has just said to the congregation about how to treat their pastors? And it seems to me that the question can be answered objectively. The question can be answered by looking at the very structure of the text. And so with your Bibles open, look down at the very first words of verse 12. 
We request of you, brethren. Okay? That's a marker, a heading to the section. Now look at verse 14. We urge you, brethren. That's another marker of a new section. So what's obvious to us from the very structure of the text here is that Paul hits the home stretch here in 1 Thessalonians 5, and he gives very specific exhortations to the church about how to behave at church. He gives us this particular and primary exhortation in verse 12 through 13 about how pastors and congregation relate to one another. And then when you move on to verse 14, there's other particular and specific moral exhortations about how members are to treat one another. You see, it must be the case that since uh, live in peace is not yet with the new section in verse 14, that it fits with the prior section, which begins at the beginning of verse 12, we urge you, brethren. So that means then this morning, people of God, that the command of verse 12, you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, and the command of verse 13, you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, those duties are the means by which this peace is achieved. In other words, we could say these duties aim at something. They aim at peace in the congregation. You see, we said last time, and it holds true today still, that if the relationship between the pastor and the congregation is sour, if there's conflict, if there's contention, the church will be unhealthy. There's no way for a church to be healthy and to achieve the things which Christ would have the church achieve without wholeness and healthiness in the life of the congregation. So you can see here that the Apostle Paul addresses this to the church and he says, here's what I command. I command that you live in peace with one another and here's how you do it. Pastors will do their work and members will do theirs. We have two key admonitions and duties now. We studied pastor's work last time in verse 12. Appreciate those who labor among you, who have charge over you, and give you instruction. And then this morning now, we turn to see how peace is cultivated within the congregation according to these two key duties of the congregation. Appreciate and esteem. If we follow these, we will cultivate and promote peace within the congregation. And so I guess this morning you could say I'm a little bit in the uncomfortable position of being as your pastor telling you how to treat me. But that's okay because who else is going to teach you? After all, I've been taught. I've been appointed by Christ to be the, pra- the preacher and to teach here. And so when we hear this, we have to sit under the word of God as pastor and congregation and learn from God as his word is expounded. And it's quite evident here this morning that the apostle gives two key duties and moral exhortations to the church. And the first one is appreciation. Now, I would just say in a general way, we can distinguish between the two duties here of appreciation and esteem by saying this. Appreciation is about action and esteem is about attitude. One is about action and the other is about Attitude. That's not airtight, but I think it works pretty good, and you'll see it as we sweep it out from the text. And so we have, first of all, appreciation, and we should ask, well, what is the meaning? And some of you may have this in your translation, not appreciate, but know. 
And there's a good reason for that. Because if you were to go to your, <clears throat> your bookshelf and, and pull off of your bookshelf out of all of your uh, Greek um, dictionaries, you pulled one after the other out and you looked up the Greek verb here, you would find that the very first heading in all of those dictionary headings for the term or verb oida would be no, which means to possess information about. And so some translations have no here. But you ask yourself the question this morning, what in the world would it possibly mean for the Apostle Paul to say to you this morning, know your pastor? What would it mean for the congregation to know my name, the name of my wife, the name of my children, and the street I live on? Well, it'd be useful information at some level, I suppose. You wouldn't be sitting there calling me hey all the time. But the reality is it doesn't quite get at what is intended by this particular verb. So uh, if you were to take that same Greek dictionary and look down in the list of possible nuances and meanings, generally what you will find is something like honor or appreciate. Honor or appreciate. Those are actions. And uh, one text that draws this out for us, and we could say it's a... A parallel is 1 Timothy 5.17. So turn over there with me. 1 Timothy 5.17, because this passage does a good job of helping us put meat on the bones, so to speak, when we ask what in the world is meant by know or appreciate those who labor among you. And you see here the Apostle Paul is speaking to pastors as he refers to elders who Work hard at preaching. So uh, we know that there's a parallel here. And, and the key word that ties our text together, just so we know we're not grasping at, at any old straws blindly, to say, well, this passage is telling us what 1 Thessalonians 5.12 is about. No, we're looking at links between the uh, passages which are objective. And the objective link is that word here in verse 17. Those who work hard at preaching and teaching. You see, he is referring to those who are preachers of the word. It's the very same verb that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, which is translated diligently labor. So the two texts are connected by the same ministerial action those who preach and teach the word or those who labor in the word. And so uh, this text then will teach us about what it means because it's very obvious as you look at verse 17 here that Paul tells you exactly how the congregation is to appreciate or honor or know the pastor. And so the first thing that I would say here, and I think this is a contextual uh, indicator that's important to us to think about, first of all, is, is Paul is talking to the congregation. And, and I think that's important, and it's not entirely self-evident. After all, what is the name of this book? 1 Timothy. In other words, the book is addressed to Timothy. The book is addressed to a younger pastor named Timothy who had the reputation for being a little cowering. And he was left behind by Paul in Ephesus to clean up a mess. Some false teachers had penetrated the congregation, and Timothy had begun to withdraw. And so here the Apostle Paul writes to fire him up. 1 Timothy is about the Apostle Paul bucking Timothy up 
so that he'll fulfill his pastoral calling. But as you come into verse 17, it should be quite obvious to us that Paul is no longer talking to Timothy. Paul is now talking to the congregation which has been listening in on the conversation between Paul and Timothy. Okay? After all, what sense would it make for Paul to command Timothy to consider worthy of double honor those elders who worked hard at preaching? Timothy is the one who's working hard at preaching. He's not commanding Timothy to honor himself doubly. So he's talking to the congregation here. The congregation that is listening in is now being told to do something. In fact, you can say they are being commanded to do something. And you see exactly what it is they're being commanded to do. And that is to consider worthy of double honor. Now, here's your word that is not specifically the same word as no or appreciate from 1 Thessalonians 5.12, but it carries the same force and weight. This means regard as worthy or deserving. So we know the passage is, is the same in terms of the duty that's in view, the pastoral duty of preaching and teaching. But now we then know the same duty is in view with respect to the congregation. On the one hand, it was to appreciate. Here, it's to honor, to consider deserving or worthy. But we don't quite know what that verb means yet, do we? Until we begin to look at the object of the verb. The verb is, is clear, consider worthy. But what is the object of the verb? Double honor. And it feels like we just dug in deeper into not knowing what the text is about. What in the world is double honor? Well, it, it surely means respect and it surely means a kind of reverence. But, but the reality is here, the word honor <clears throat> that the Apostle Paul uses here means pay. That's what it means. Pay. It means a price. Sometimes in the Bible, you are told that Christ bought you with a price, with pay, with cash. So when we hear the term, we have to begin to realize that the term is alive with a pregnant sense of meaning. And we know for sure that this is about pay, this is about cash, because of what follows in verse 18. Four. Now let's just read the whole thing together so we pick up the full force of the thought. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, for. You see, that four signals that whatever follows is going to explain to us what it means to honor or to consider worthy of double honor. We know that's the case. And so we have to ask, what follows for? And... Uh, if your translation is similar to mine, <clears throat> what you'll see here is an obvious way the text indicates that it's a quotation from the Old Testament. And uh, I have to admit this morning, it's humorous. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox. It is humorous. It's okay to laugh at because it seems in a sense quite odd that we're talking about pastors and how to honor them. And the first word out of Paul's mouth is talking about cows. Deuteronomy 25, 4. 
And so the question is, what in the world does the Apostle Paul mean by quoting from Deuteronomy 25.4, don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing out the corn? And the answer is, the Apostle Paul has already given us an inspired interpretation of that. So turn with me in your Bibles again to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're doing a lot of turning this morning. It's a little bit unusual. We don't tend to do that, but here's one of these times when we preach consecutively and expositionally through the Word of God, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book, that we need to bring in uh, the broader Word of God according to that great Reformation principle of biblical interpretation, which is that Scripture interprets Scripture. And here it's, it's categorically true that Scripture interprets trip, uh, Scripture, because I want you to look here at verse 9. The Apostle Paul says, For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. See, it's the same text that you have in 1 Timothy 5.18. And then he asks this very fascinating question. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? (laughs) That's a great question. And, And he follows it up by saying, it's written for us. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of the sharing of the crops. It's not clear yet what he's speaking about. But now verse 11. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? See now? It seems pretty obvious. I think we would all agree that now the Apostle Paul is speaking about the relationship between pastor and congregation. He's reaching for a text about oxen and he's humorously applying it to the pastor, but it's not mere humor. This is being done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying that this this moral uh, category of the law, this moral application, this ethical principle of the moral law applies to the church. He says it applies particularly to pastor-congregational relations. You come to verse 14, it's very obvious what Paul is speaking of. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. What is Paul's inspired interpretation of Deuteronomy 25 for? It's right here. He says, the Lord gave it to me. The Lord's inspired interpretation is, don't muzzle the ox while he's working. That means those who proclaim the gospel, pastors, get their living from the gospel, which means that the very people who receive gospel ministry from the pastor, they compensate for it. That's what he's saying here in verse 18. That, if we plug it all in now, is the double honor that Paul says the congregation owes. Double honor is not muzzling. And then he does something which is quite fascinating. He adds another uh, biblical reference that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything will be established, right? He says, quote, the labor is worthy of his wages. Now, I wonder if in your translation you have a, a little note there. And if you do, what you'll see is that these are the words of Jesus Christ. Paul is citing the words of Jesus Christ, which are recorded in Luke 10, 7. 
And once again, he's saying the Bible says this is so. The laborer is worthy of his wages. And we know who the laborer is and the apostle is speaking of. All we have to do is look back to verse 17, where he literally uses the word laborer. The one who labors at preaching and teaching. So we have a twofold clarification now in verse 17 about what the apostle means when he says, Elders who rule well, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, are to be considered worthy of double honor, pay, compensation, real financial care. It's the same thing the Apostle Paul says, by the way, in Galatians 6.6. 6. He says, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Literally, it's the one who is catechized in the word is to share with the one who is catechized. Again, it's a relationship of pastor to congregation. So here the apostle makes it very plain. You can come back into our text now. The apostle makes it very plain here as one passage interprets the other. When the apostle Paul speaks of appreciation, he speaks of action. And the particular action he speaks of is financial compensation. So that brings us to motive, and I couldn't help but um, read this to you. It's from John Calvin, who says, God also, on just grounds, inflicts vengeance upon the world inasmuch as he deprives it of good ministers to whom it is ungrateful. It's not so much, then, for the advantage of ministers as of the, ch- of the whole church that those who faithfully preside over it should be held in esteem and appreciation. You see what the Calvin does here? This is right after he opens his comments on verse 12. And as he opens his comments on verse 12, he says that the reason why there is a lack of preaching and ministry in the world is because people, that is the church, don't honor the kingdom of God as they ought. And he says that failure to honor the kingdom of God for its dignity leads pastors to become indifferent to their work because God isn't honored. He basically says the reason why pastors are indifferent and give up their work is because they say, what is the point? If they don't honor Christ and his kingdom, how in the world could I ever expect they would honor me? And then he goes on to give us this comment here that God inflicts vengeance upon the world. And the vengeance which God afflicts upon the world is the deprivation of the church of pastors. He takes them away. Calvin says, it's not for pastors. Or Calvin says, it's not for pastors that Calvin or that Paul writes these things. Paul writes these things for the sake of the church. Paul writes what he writes here in verses 12 through 13, so that the church would have the advantage of knowing how to sustain and maintain this relationship, so it's for their good. The assumption here is this is not written for the behalf of the pastor. The assumption is that this is written on behalf of the congregation because presumably it is the congregation as a whole that suffers if the ministry is taken away. And so it's interesting here that when the apostle, and this is the case so often when we see them dealing with matters in the church, they get their hands dirty. In a sense, this feels a little odd to us. You want to maintain a good relationship between you and your pastor? Let's talk about money. (laughs) 
But there's some practical truth to that, isn't there? Some practical truth. It is said that the number one reason why people divorce is because of money. It is true that money is an issue, but when you stop and think about this for our application, I think you would have to agree with me, and I'm a pastor, and I actually think this. I could care less about the money. I could care less about the money or the paycheck if there's no relationship. I think what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's putting under a spotlight something that's very real and tangible. And money gets us there because it's so obviously tangible. We have a sense of how people view something by how, what they spend their money on. So there is a sense in which money is the issue and there's a sense in which it is not. I'd eat beans and rice all day long without a paycheck if I thought the congregation cared. You see, that to me is the more important thing. And I think you could poll pastors all day long. They'll, they'll go on shoestrings if they need to. If the relationship is sound. But you see here, this is just a way of getting there in a very practical way that all of us sitting in our checkbook this morning understand. This is about care. This is about a bond. This is about a relationship. This was driven home to me in the ministry some time ago when I met a pastor who was no longer serving as a pastor. And um, the reason why is because he went bankrupt in the ministry. He was paid so poorly by his congregation that he went bankrupt because medical bills piled up because he wasn't being paid enough to pay for adequate insurance. And massive medical bills came along and he went bankrupt. He left the ministry. He went and got a good paying job with good benefits. And he did very well. And two things happened. This pastor, former pastor, now had money and so did the congregation because they didn't have to pay a pastor. Who won? What was good? Was that good? Was it good that the congregation loses a pastor? Because there's not enough pay? Uh, the answer is already spelled out in the way we spoke of it. You see, the Apostle Paul is trying to put something tangible for us as a congregation. That tangible thing is money gets us to think about things that are concrete. Because we value money. The Apostle Paul is trying to get a broader question, practical care and concern. It's wonderful if you know the pastor's name and the wife's name, the children's name, what street they live on and where they went to school and their family history and all that. The real care and concern, practical, tangible care and concern about their life, their needs, their struggles. That's what the Apostle Paul is getting to and he does it through money. The second thing that I would say here by way of application through this word appreciation is, it seems to me, and I thought much about this, it's an act of faith, isn't it? This is where it feels like we're getting spiritual, right? Because it's a, it is a spiritual matter how we treat each other. There's absolutely no doubt whatsoever. Especially how you would treat somebody that is Christ's provision to you to minister to your soul. It's very spiritual. How do you treat them? How do you care for them? Do you speak to them well? Do you, do you encourage them? Do you come alongside them in their life? Do you know their needs? But there's also a sense in which this act of appreciation is an act of faith. You see, um, money, because of our sinful heart, does something very strange to us. It makes us behave in sinful ways. Uh, we idolize money and what it could buy for us. 
And so when we think about our use of money, sometimes a fog is cast over our eyes. But how we spend our money says a lot about our soul. Your checkbook is connected to your heart. And one of the hardest things to do with money is to give it away. One of the hardest things to do with money is to give it away. And what's even harder is to give money away when there's no obvious, tangible, evident benefit that returns. And it seems like that's what happens when you give money to the church, doesn't it? There's no exchange. You don't get anything. You give. And that giving, when you're giving, according to the command of Christ has to be an act of faith. It's you saying, I trust that this gift, given according to the command of Christ, goes to something that's good. And that thing which is good <coughs> is the shepherding of your soul with the Word of God. You see, it is a great act of faith because you're trusting what Jesus Christ says in His Word. That when the Word of God is preached, Christ is speaking to you. Nowhere does the Bible say that of anything else. It says this is where you go on earth to hear Jesus Christ speak. He's not in still small voices. He's not in tongues and prophecy. He's not in Christian rock concerts and emotional mood swings. Jesus Christ speaks here in the preaching of the word. He consecrates the mouth of the minister to speak to his church and to sanctify them with grace. That's why we give. The appreciation is an appreciation based upon what faith understands is that this word is what I need. I need to hear Christ. We used to say this years ago when we were bringing people into the church and planting the church, we said this. We said we have to explain to people why you would drive past 60 other churches to come to this one. Now, I know we should have sold it based upon our fabulous building and location. I realize that. No, we said that because we said you have to understand what is value about this. Worshiping God as he commands and hearing Christ speak. These are the things that are about this church. Worshiping as God commands and the theology of the ministry, which this, this ordinary means of grace that Christ communicates himself in two and only two ways ordinarily. The preaching of the word of God and the administration of the sacrament. And we'll have both of them thank you on Lord's, every Lord's Day. That's what we're trying to say. We have to discern and understand what it's for. And so it's a great step of faith to separate cash from your wallet to give. Because what you're saying is, I need this word and that office and that man who fills it is whom Christ has given to me that I may receive him. And you know, I'm struck by the fact that faith is weak. And sometimes the way the word works might feel like it undermines the whole case. You know, it takes time for the Word to do its work. You don't listen to one or two sermons and have a revolution in your life. 
Praise God if you do. I, I really that would that's wonderful. The Apostle Paul had the great Damascus Road conversion, was knocked off his donkey, his nose face planted in the sand, and he became a new man through the power of Jesus Christ. One sermon. But you know, believers tend not to change that rapidly. They come to Christ, they get saved, praise the Lord, and then the process of growing into maturity, which is Christ has for his church, is slow. Sometimes frustratingly so. Sometimes you say, I feel like I'm the same person I was 10 years ago. I don't say that as a good thing. Sometimes people say, I'm worse off now than I was 10 years ago. How could that be? I've been sitting in the ministry of the word. That's serious. That's solemn. And when we evaluate this ministry and our giving based upon that, it could be discouraging to us. But we remember we don't evaluate the power and the efficacy of the preached word of God based upon the limitation of our own experience. We understand it and evaluate it based upon the word of God. And what God tells us is that Jesus Christ does something wonderful for us every Lord's Day. It's so wonderful, I can't afford to miss it. He speaks. He speaks and he plants the word right into our hearts. And he brings it so that it's in our mouth. And so it settles into our ears. And so it sinks down into the depths of our heart. That's something you can't get anywhere in this world. The way peace is maintained as the congregation is when the people of God <laughs> trust the word. They trust what God says about this. And they say, Jesus Christ, I trust you're going to work in me through what you've instituted in your church. There will be peace if we believe that and act accordingly. Appreciate those who labor diligently among you. The second duty is spelled out here in verse 13. The fact that verse 13 begins with and tells us the same people are being addressed, which is the congregation, which is the people who are entitled brethren in verse 12, the members of the church. And now he says, and that you, that is the congregation, esteem them, that is the pastors, very highly in love on account of their work. So here's your second one. We said the first one tended towards action, which is the giving, right? It's the, uh, it's the paycheck. And care and everything that's bound up with that relationship. Now, this word esteem is attitude. This word esteem is, is, is all about attitude. It is about reverence. It is about honor. It is about respect. Um, and it's a respect grounded in the office and what it represents. We know what this represents because Jesus Christ, or the Apostle Paul, explained why Christ gave the office of ministry to the church. It's, it's for the perfecting of the body, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, so that we will become mature. Ephesians 5, or 4, 12 and 13. And so we understand what the esteem is for. The esteem is grounded in the office. And in the ministry, but I also have you notice here the qualification, very highly in love. And, you know, the word here uh, uh, that is used is, is a word of excess. Not, not um, a sort of uh, lukewarmness. It's, a, it's an intense word, very highly, excessively. It's full of vigor and strength. It's to the greatest 
degree. And I thought about that and I said, well, where can we turn in the Word to find out what that means? And so you can turn with me this morning over to Galatians chapter 4. We have a tremendous example of it over there, Galatians chapter 4. Because the Apostle Paul, he doesn't uh, use the same words very highly in love, but I think you'll be able to agree with me this is what he's talking about. He says in verse 13, But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Well, I realize the words very highly in love are not used here, but can we agree it's pretty much the same thing? He says, um, walking them down memory lane, I came to you and I was in bad shape. We don't know precisely what his problem is, scholars debate. Some think that it was uh, grand mal seizures. Others think that um, it was some sort of eye problem that caused pus and oozing and deformity to his face. Whatever it was, it was one of those kinds of cultural things that if a person had it, you wouldn't listen to them. (laughs) The ancient world was full of superstition. And people who were deformed and sick, well, don't listen to them. Because uh, it's obviously not working too good for them, probably not going to work too good for you. (laughs) And, you know, uh, the apostle said it was a trial to you. That's what he meant. There was nothing about him that commended him to them, except his message. And uh, the reception here highlights the love. You receive me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. See, respect for the office, respect for the sender, respect for the message. And then the tangibility of it all. He said, I, I bear witness to you. You would have plucked your own eye out and given it to me. Or how about this? We don't use that expression anymore. Maybe it was some sort of a euphemistic expression then, but we use it now. Oh, that good old boy, he'd give you the shirt off his back if you needed it. Well, that's a practicality. You see, there was a kind of forbearing of his infirmities and his weaknesses that they could say, we, we, we overlooked that. It's not doctrinal. It's not practical. It's not false worship. It's his own personal quirks and peculiarities. We can overlook that. We can bear patiently with some of that. It's not impeding uh, the worship of God. It's not corrupting the doctrine of the preaching. It's not moral. It's not unbiblical. It's just who he is. We can tolerate the peculiarities and the quirkiness of him. It seems all of us have that as pastors. I don't know why, but we do. Pastors get together and joke about the fact they've never met a normal pastor yet. So it's not just me saying that. He says, we can tolerate it. Why? Because we're not receiving him based upon the limitations or shortcomings. We receive it because it's the ministry of Christ. It's because of the word. It's because of the truth. Now I bring this text in for a reason because the apostles said that, that was the relationship and it was one of peace. But when he wrote this letter, it was no longer one of peace. It's lamentable. He says, so have I become your enemy. 
by telling you the truth. You see, a relationship of love and honor and respect was exchanged for hostility. And what was the reason for the hostility? He said, I told you the truth. It seems to me that is behind the backdrop of our letter here because the Galatian preaching happened uh, maybe a year or two before the preaching here in Thessalonica. Paul has this very freshly in mind. He's aware of the fact that uh, this relationship between pastor and congregation can go sideways. And one thing that could be the going well, very highly in love, esteem, appreciation, and honor, and the next, it can go badly because why? Well, if it's not due to sin on the pastor's part or faithless, uh, unfaithful preaching and teaching, it can go wrong because of what the pastor does. He preaches the word, he has charge over you, and he gives you corrective instruction. The Apostle Paul is quite aware of the fact that people sometimes don't like to hear the bad news. I believe that was behind it. And I said to you last time, preaching has to include the bad news. It has to include the correction. Because there's no way to be made mature without being corrected. There's no way to be made mature without being corrected. You've got to stop doing things that are wrong. You've got to stop certain practices. You've got to change certain attitudes. You've got to put on new behavior. It's a slow, long, frustrating, agonizing process. But it has to happen. And it's the obligation of the pastor to speak the word sometimes in such a way that you feel the pinch of it. Because Christ would have us not stay where we are, but mature in him. It's not always easy. You know... I hate change. I really do. I like to cling to the things that just feel reliable and predictable. I think that's kind of common. But the ministry of the word won't let you be that person. It won't. Because Christ has something higher for you to attain. And that higher thing is maturity and completeness in Christ And that means as the whole of the word is set forth before you and ministered to you and divided into law and gospel, there will be times when you are going to feel like the preacher was speaking just at you. Oh, I hate getting those phone calls. Why were you picking on my son today? I've had that happen. Why were you picking on me today? But you know, people of God, that's not intentional. When we minister the word, the word has a corrective force to it. We can't grow by clinging to falsehood and error. So the Apostle Paul says, esteem them very highly in love. The reason, because of their work. Look at the rest of verse 13 here as you come back into our text. Esteem them very highly in love. Pluck out your eye for them. Give them the shirt off your back for their work. For their work. Work obviously looks back to what's just been spelled out in verse 12. Uh, diligent labor, charge over you, giving you instruction. But uh, here maybe I'll just turn over to a passage that amplifies ours a bit and That's Hebrews 13. 
Hebrews 13, I think uh, what you have here really does unpack the thought here a lot. Um, already in verse 7, we see something of this. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. The, the verb led you is parallel here to our verb charge over you in the Lord. This is spiritual oversight. Ministry of shepherding kind of things. Um, drop down to verse 17, though. I'd really hone in and focus on this. Obey your leaders, the same verb that you had back in uh, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your soul. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with grief. This would be unprofitable to you. There's two things here that... Uh, that come to mind as we think about this by way of application. What does it mean to esteem them very highly in love for their work? And that work is quite obvious here. It's to keep watch over your soul. You, you have had by Christ somebody appointed to keep watch over your soul. You may not like it. You may wish it was different. That's the church. This is exactly what Christ has appointed. And because of that, there's two things that Christ Jesus said you're to do. Obey and submit. So I looked at that word obey because I realized this feels pretty strong. And what I was surprised by is it's patho, persuade. It's the verb that would regularly be used in the New Testament outside of that in Greek and the, the, the rhetoricians of persuasion. And it got me to thinking about something that is fundamental to the Presbyterian understanding of the ministry. It's this. We believe in persuasive ministry, not coercive ministry. There's a vast difference between the two. Because in the Presbyterian church, we understand we are under shepherds of Christ. We are not Christ on earth. That's Rome. That's magisterial. That's do it because I said so. That's not what we do. This ministry is different. This ministry is under Christ as servants of the word. And our authority resides not in ourselves. It resides in the word that is brought. There's no stick. There's just the word. And the persuasive means of ministry, that is the theology of ministry in the Presbyterian churches, we bring the word with all of its authority and persuade you that this is the right interpretation so that it constrains the conscience. That's what the apostle is speaking of here. Not a blank check of obedience, but the obedience which is due to Christ and his word. And that word is set forth by way of admonition or reproof or anything else. The duty is the obedience because it's obedience to Christ. The other word submit I thought of too, and believe me, I thought of the strength of that word. Because we're used to this term from what? The husband and wife relationship. Um, wives uh, submit to your husbands. You know what the verb there is? Hupotasso. That's a word that is so strong, it makes you shudder. This isn't. The word for submit here means comply or yield. Yielding's much different, isn't it? Yield. It's what you do when you drive on the freeway. 
and uh, both cars are racing along, and we have to figure out which one's going to take the, the, the bull by the horns here. One's going to have to drive 75, the other's going to have to drive 65, or we're going to have a massive crash. Yield, right? So we're Justin. But, but this idea of yield is, is, is drawn out by one commentator who says that uh, the esteem of pastors and elders, which is for the peace of the church, is a willing compliance and a yielding to leadership by the members, even when it runs counter to your desires or wishes. In other words, it says at some point, there has to be leading and there has to be following. And, and if there's no biblical principle at stake, if there's nothing that's unbiblical or false in terms of doctrine or whatever, then the leadership who takes lead and says, we're charting the course this way, it says, you follow. Because if we don't, we'll be a directionless church. We will be a directionless church. And you could say, well, we'd have peace. The pastor would realize that nobody wanted to follow. He just gave up and was quiet. And I say, no, that's failure of leadership. Because that's not what was called to be. The apostle here, the preacher here, does not say, well, submit if you'd like, and we'll have leadership in the church if y'all want to. Oh, he says, obey. He says, yield. You know, um, it struck me that this is in our vows. Vow four. Do you promise to submit in the Lord to the teaching and the government of the church as being based upon the scriptures? Do you promise? I was at an ordination service yesterday. had the privilege to lay my hands on Brother Noah Shepherd, who most of you know because he's preached here. And I couldn't help but reflect on the day I was ordained. It's been uh, almost exactly 21 years ago to the day. And I've never forgot the weight of 35 sets of hands upon me. You know, when you join the church, you don't feel that because no one lays hands on you. But the vow and the solemnity of it all is something you just can't forget. I hope we have that sense ourselves. We have all taken vows. Not one person was coerced into membership in this congregation. Not one. You all made your vows of your own accord. And so that means that there are different things that we do. Pastors have their calling, and the members have theirs. And so the church has to be a place where we respect the order Christ has instituted. If we don't, we'll not have peace. If we don't, we'll have peace and no leading. And that's not peace. And it's not leadership. And it's not good. And so... We take up this text this morning and we hear the call, which is to cultivate it. John Calvin has a pretty direct quote here that I want to share with you. Hence we see daily how pastors are hated by their churches for some trivial reason, or for no reason whatever, because this desire for the cultivation of peace, which Paul recommends so strongly, is not exercised. Basically, 
This is a negative way of saying Paul was right. And it was based upon experience. He says, we see this daily. We see this daily. It's not practice. If you spend any time around a group of pastors, you'll hear story after story of church ministry ground to a halt. Church contention boiling over. It's so hot you'd scald yourself. Or churches falling apart and on the brink of extinction and no longer existing because some of this is at play. I know right now of churches that are just about ready to go out of business, if you will, over stupid, ridiculous squabbles that have nothing to do with doctrine, worship, or government. Why is that happening? It's because Satan loves to stoke fear and division and dissension and contention and conflict within the church. And so what do we have to do? We have to understand that our enemy is on the prowl. And he knows that a healthy church is dangerous to the kingdom of darkness because a healthy church, which listening to Christ and submitting to Christ and taking up the charge and the command of Christ, will invade that kingdom of darkness and by Christ's power and authority subdue it. And that's what we ought to long for and seek after and pray about. And one way that will be made useful for Christ to accomplishing that is by doing what Paul called us to do. Pastors, I speak to myself. You have a charge. Labor in the word. Take careful spiritual oversight of the flock. Exercise corrective influence as needed. Congregation, appreciate those who have the charge over you and labor over you in the Lord. Esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And if we do that... The Apostle Paul says, the aim will be accomplished. We will live in peace together. May God bless our striving. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, for its directness and its concreteness. We don't walk away this morning wondering what your will is for your church. It might be hard for us to accomplish, and we concede that. Due to our sinfulness, our pride, our willfulness to wander and to be self-asserting. Lord, we know that these are not always easy things. But we ask that you would use your word to sanctify us. And to give us the desires that you have for your church. That it may accomplish the objectives that you have for it. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to commit ourselves to be peacemakers and peacekeepers and peace promoters by the way we act and treat one another that um, through that this congregation would know your richest blessing and gospel prosperity this we ask in jesus name amen